Since 1984, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen, in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together by connecting them to each other through thematic, cast, and crew members, or any other various elements. Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. Each week we discuss a film that is connected in some way to the film we watched the previous week. The only caveat, the film must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We'll also highlight new additions to the collection, great hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. I'm Ian, and this is my co-host Mackenzie. Hello! Hello Mackenzie! And this week, we're discussing Spine number 555, directed by Alexander Mackendrick, The Sweet Smell of Success. And so this film is going to be my pick in connection to last week's film, which was your pick, Mackenzie, Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. And we can dive into a little bit about what connects this film to that film later when we get to our feature discussion. But before we do that, I got to know, what have you been watching over the course of the past week? I have not watched a lot of movies. Uh, you'll hear if you also are an ADP listener on our latest episode. I watched. I've been watching a lot of TV, so a lot of you know, Succession's back, Yellow Jackets is back, all the all the Barry's coming back. A lot of good TV. Um, but on the channel, I did check out a film. I don't know what compelled me, but I watched uh, 1956's Written on the Wind directed by Douglas Sirk. And I know we're going to get into some Sirk with you as well. Um, but yeah, I really dug this. It's my second Sirk that I've watched. Uh, I definitely think I, my favorite is still all that heaven allows, which I just like blind bought the Blu-ray of. Cause I was like, I need to see this movie desperately love it so much. Cannot wait till we do it one day. Uh, but I love Sirk's vibe. Like he, I wrote in my review for written on the wind that he feels like the epitome of like every frame of painting in terms of the way he directs. And mm -hmm. uh, I feel like we talked about it a bit in my top tens. You know, I love that melodrama space that I feel like a lot of directors like Almodovar that I adore um, sort of live in. And so Cirque feels like the, 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 like the king of all of that kind of. And a lot of the directors I love have, I feel like come from his style and uh yeah written on the one was great i was mostly interested in it because it, i just noticed it on the collection like cirque's stuff is like notoriously kind of hard to stream uh mm. all that heaven allows i think is like his biggest and you literally cannot find it anywhere so I thought it was kind of interesting that written on the wind kind of just snuck onto the channel and i was like because i got a little <laughs> notification on my letter on my little letterbox thing that was like hey you can watch written on the wind now and i was like what uh so i just i was like let's do this uh and yeah, I was really most interested in Lauren Bacall because, you know, I love my man Bogey and Lauren Bacall is his girl mm -hmm. and uh, she's fabulous in this. I loved Lauren Bacall in this. I mean, she's amazing in everything, but I love that she she like looks like a human being, which I know sounds weird, but I love that like she's this screen siren 
who this is gonna sound so bad but this is also why i love bogey she has like a like a textured face like you see the lines you see the crow's feet you see the age but she still is like gorgeous and treated like a screen siren i love that she mm-hmm. looks like a woman who's like lived a life uh and she has that deep raspy voice that lauren bacall yeah. has and uh she's great another great rock hudson performance uh it's it's really good it kind of has this tennessee williamsy flair in terms of like a family with alcoholism and they all kind of hate each other and death and so it kind of has like a tennessee williamsy script to me um but yeah i dug it a lot i i need to watch more cirque i would absolutely recommend to anybody checking out written on the wind while it's on the channel and if you like it then you will love all that heaven allows so i watched a little cirque what did you watch i know you also watched a cirque yeah i also watched my second cirque it's the second film i've seen by douglas cirque i also uh started with all that heaven allows i absolutely adored it and i I also really love that melodrama space. Um, I love current melodramas, but it's obvious that like a lot of these people that you and I love, Amoldovar being one, Joachim Trier being one for me, mm. um, really find a lot of their influence in Douglas Hirk films. You know, it's kind of what I talked about in previous episodes. Like I kind of go into classic Hollywood films with a lot of tepidation and then Douglas Hirk puts pen to paper and puts... Uh, stuff on celluloid and i'm like why did i ever doubt anything because it is you know he just makes such great films that are so captivating and speaking of women with a face and raspy voices this one that i watched all um all i desire starred barbara stanwick and she's phenomenal in this i think i've seen three or four of her movies now and this is my second favorite performance that i've seen with her uh by her sorry and uh yeah right behind double indemnity the iconic Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity, Inevitable Episode. So yeah, I watched that and I really liked it. Super melodramatic, like super melodramatic, (laughs) but really, really fun and uh, just really engrossing. Speaking of engrossing, I also caught two other films uh, that are actually in the collection. So All I Desire is just a channel, uh, a a film I caught on the channel and I didn't even really mean to watch this first one off Spotlight, but the first one that I watched, we kind of touched on on our last episode. It's Spine Number 89 by Brian De Palma. It's Sisters. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I thought this was so cool. I gave it four out of five stars on Letterboxd, and I was picking up on some Persona vibes. It's very mm. heavily influenced by Hitchcock, but that did not really strike me because I'm not a Hitchcock fan, and I haven't seen a lot of Hitchcock I know those two things don't really go well together because it's like, well, how can you say you're not a fan of Hitchcock if you haven't seen a lot of Hitchcock? Ladies and gents and non-binary pals, I've seen enough. I'm not a Hitchcock fan. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, (laughs) Going to get some blowback on that one. We have many of friends who are big Hitchcock fans. Wow, 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 wow. But uh, (laughs) yeah, this one was super, super fun. Again, picking up on some Persona vibes. There was some ACAB in there, which I really appreciated. Brandon Palm is a cool cool dude. Uh, So I watched that. And then yesterday was my birthday. And uh, my lovely fiance took me to the Texas Theater in downtown Dallas. And we caught another film that is in the collection. Just actually a cup, uh, hot skip and a boat right away from Sisters, Spine Number 73, Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7. And I gave this film 5 out of 5 stars <laughs> because I loved it. I'm still marinating on it. I'm still thinking about it, but it's just so beautiful. 
there is a musical number in the first half of this film that is just transcendent. Um, but again, I'm still kind of like sitting with it, but I just know that I loved it a lot. And seeing it in a beautiful 4K restoration on the big screen was mm. magnifique. And before we move on, I do have to step outside of the Criterion closet really quick. Um, Mackenzie, have you heard yes. about a little movie called John Wick Chapter 4? <laughs> I, you know, I'm hearing the buzz. What's the buzz? <laughs> Tell me what's happening. There's my Jesus Christ Superstar reference. Um, yeah, I have heard... I have heard many words about this and I have yet to see it. I still need to watch one through three so I can catch up and like be there for four, but I am hearing a lot of amazing things. Well, let me tell you, uh, three days ago, I did not give a rat's ass about John Wick. Uh, <laughs> I had never seen one of the films. I had a passing love for Keanu. I was like, I like Keanu. Seems like a really cool guy. Matrix guy, not really yeah. my thing though. And I just got the bug. I know, I know. Your beloved Wachowskis. Uh, my Matrix my is beloved girlies. They're my yeah. girlies. I love them. I know. They're amazing. We love them. But uh, <laughs> Matrix is not my bag. I think I just have lived in a world where the Matrix is so ubiquitous. It didn't hit me. Hmm. And the way that it hit so many people who are maybe about, you know, five, eight years older than you and I. But I just got the bug, got the itch, had to check out our boy Keanu in these films. So I went and used my Tarkers target circle rewards and got the john wick trilogy the first three for just 12 bucks bought the blu-ray three pack and oh mama these movies are wild and i do not like action films I don't like the mission impossible movies not a fan of james bond it's really hard for me to get invested in action films but these are well worth it and the fourth one is a epic i highly recommend everybody step outside of your you know highfalutin art house uh <laughs> you know viewing habits and maybe give the john wick films a try i'm not all i'm not so self-serious i can have a little fun too i love it oh hey you know you know me like i love i love my criterion but i also love my scooby-doo two monsters <laughs> unleashed you know i'm there for everything yeah everybody tune into adp next uh today actually when you're hearing today, this spice, spice world, world baby yeah, yeah five stars i don't give a shit okay <laughs> i can give a billy wilder movie and and spice world five stars i think both things inside me are two wolves and those are the two wolves my criterion yeah. half and my goofy half so everybody from mackenzie you've got spice world you've got a douglas cirque written on the wind from me you've got cleo from five to seven brian de palma's sisters as well as all four of the john wick movies i highly recommend every single one of those Oh, man. I want to say about Barbara Stanwyck. Have you seen The Lady Eve yet? I have not. I've seen uh, Ball of oh. Fire, but I've not seen The Lady Eve yet. That's going to be a great episode. She is amazing in that. Not to pun on Ball of Fire. She's on fire in that. Um, that, <laughs> that was the movie that made me. Her. Oh, yes. The, yeah. Where she's her dancing the, with all the, the guys. Professors, yeah. What were we going to say? <laughs> I was going to say, like, that's the movie that made me, like, fall in love with Barbara Stanwyck. She's, like, my main old Hollywood crush. Uh, there was uh, she was like heavily rumored to be gay uh, and there, the one time a reporter dared ask her to her face she kicked him out of her home uh, and so Rachel she was deeply Republican she was deeply conservative oh, really? and Rachel and I oh yeah and Rachel and I love to call her my log cabin lesbian crush <laughs> uh, so I, <laughs> I love a Barbara I love Barbara Stanley I know a lot of gay old Hollywood history <laughs> if you ever need it you do no I mean you're my you're my uh, primary reader source for all of that uh 
because honestly, I just don't dive deep too into that era. But and there's a great book called The Sewing Circle that talks about that sort of that was the name that a lot of that sort of circle of hmm maybe fruity maybe queer old Hollywood ladies kind of rolled in. Tallulah Bankhead being the most vocal vocally queer of all of them but there's a great book uh called the sewing circle that i recommend if you're interested in like old hollywood sapphics they get into barbara a little bit but she was very very closed off and uh closeted if she was anything and of course all we really have is speculation before we move on then uh who's one who we are like almost certain that might have been queer i'm curious now you've 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 you have poked my curiosity I mean, I feel like it's more prominent with men, right? Like there's Montgomery Rock Cliff, Hudson too, who's a huge Rock Hudson, Anthony Perkins, Randolph Scott, who was probably with Cary Grant. Uh, so I'm trying to think of, I mean, Greta Garbo is like the big one, I think, too. Greta Garbo is like one of the main, like, she's been rumored to be with like every woman in Hollywood, kind of. Uh, and she, I think she was actually a little bit more open with it she she had there's like letters between her and a lot of women who are she's just like yeah this is who i am let's do it and so i feel like greta garbo is one a lot of people are sort of shocked by i guess um she i know that her big thing was i mean she was in a lot she's a silent film actress who made the switch i know that one of the movies she was in where she did kiss a woman possibly controversially was queen christina where she played um a real life woman who has had exclusively bad film adaptations made of her, but she was a <laughs> real queen or people call her the girl King because she ruled and kind of lived as a man, quote unquote. Uh, yeah. Garbo was just kind of always a little bit, a little bit. I'm doing the limp wrist meme uh-huh. uh, on camera. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I was trying to think of who else is, I mean, Catherine Hepburn's also one that's been rumored to be at least bisexual in some way. Cause obviously she was a Spencer Tracy for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. A lot of people also think that Catherine Hepburn might have been transmask in some way or non-binary, which I sort of ascribe to, but that's mm-hmm. just me being a conspiracy theorist on the internet <laughs> and talking about a dead lady, but yeah. She's dead. She's not here. And uh, it can be a little bit of fun for us queer babies to kind of speculate about who I mean, she who or who had not. a male alter ego named Jimmy and there oh, is a, that she went by in sometimes her personal circles. And there's a great film called Sylvia Scarlet where that's George Cukor, Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, very underseen. Criterion Channel had it for a bit. Sorry for like getting away. But um, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn does full drag like in, in that movie. And like, I don't know, her performance as this boy is like transcendent. I think I think she's brilliant in that movie. So that I'm, I'm a little bit of a Catherine Hepburn, possibly trans <laughs> truther. I'm letting my truth out here on the, on the Criterion connection. Um, I'm for it. As our uh, okay, so one last thing before we move on, then as our resident oh, James old Dean. Hollywood, yeah, James Dean. One. Yes, I knew that one. Uh, as our mm-hmm. resident old Hollywood queer history expert, <laughs> is there anything about somebody who has always struck me as possibly being queer is Marlene Dietrich? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I feel like people, a lot of people, think Marlene Dietrich is bisexual because I know there. What's the movie? Is it Morocco where she kisses a woman in the nightclub? That was like a big thing that rocked oh, hang the on, movie. Folks. His- confirmed by film historian amy bork uh confirmed bisexual uh yeah i knew uh, that frequent gay bars and drag balls in the 1920s in berlin yeah i feel like german you know germany she's out there Mm -hmm. being fruity another one i forgot i'm looking at an article i forgot 
Marilyn Monroe is also someone who is probably queer that no one ever writes about being queer because I think she stands for such a symbol of like the yeah. male fantasy. Yeah. Um, gaze, but she wrote in a lot of her diaries, a lot of people also thought she might be asexual because like a lot of her diaries, she's like talks about like not having a ton of sexual mm-hmm. like, feelings for, for men or women, but then like talks a lot about her attraction to women. Uh, so yeah, you know, Marilyn Monroe, I feel like also, is, I just feel like, old Hollywood was full of queer people and yeah. uh, we don't have their stories and it makes me so sad, but we do get to speculate yeah. and identify with them and love them. But yeah. Wow. I, I feel it's like more likely than not all those black and white movies, but Hollywood was full of rainbows. Yeah. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> That's the worst joke I've ever made in my life. Um, <laughs> oh, geez. Okay. So <laughs> we gotta move on. We gotta move on. I'm just outing a bunch. I'm going to get sued for libel by someone's family because I'm out here being like, yeah, Barbara Stanwyck was gay. Uh, So don't sue me. Allegedly to all of that. Well, Mackenzie, with that, all that alleged talk of um, gossip, would you mood set for us the sordid scene of New York City in the 1950s? Mm, Yes. You smell that? That's the sweet smell of success, baby. In the swift, cynical, sweet smell of success, directed by Alexander McKendrick, Burt Lancaster stars as vicious Broadway gossip columnist J.J. Hunsecker and Tony Curtis as Sidney Falco, the unprincipled press agent Hunsecker ropes into smearing the up-and-coming jazz musician, romancing his beloved sister. Featuring deliciously unsavory dialogue in an acid, brilliantly structured script by Clifford Odets and Ernest Lehman, and noirish neon cityscapes from Oscar-winning cinematographer James Wong Howe. Sweet Smell of Success is a crackingly cruel dispatch from the kill-or-be-kill wilds of 1950s Manhattan. Sweet Smell of Success. Smells bad. <laughs> smells, smells a little. Smells a little. Smells a little shady over there. It's, yeah, there's a there's a bit on the commentary track with um, a uh, film historian, uh, James Nairmore, uh, and he talks about how there's many instances in the film where the sweet smell is alluded to, but it's alluded to as being like he says, "You know what?" But I inferred that he meant like dog shit. <laughs> so it doesn't yeah. smell very good um but Mackenzie, what's your history with this film i believe this is a first watch for you but i yes. i think you like tony curtis maybe you have some history with burt lancaster um i hadn't seen this film before i think i mentioned it maybe last week i did sit down to watch it at one point and then i was like doing other things and i got about 40 minutes in and realized i had not really been paying attention (laughs) and so i stopped it and was like this movie i think deserves my attention so i'm gonna not watch it right now because clearly i'm not like in a headspace where i'm sitting down and watching a movie um 
and that was proven to me when I got like past the 10 minute mark and I was like, oh, this feels new. And it's because I wasn't paying attention the first time I tried to play it. Uh, so I didn't really count that as a DNF. It wasn't anything the movie did. I just like was in a different, I was just doing work and doing other stuff. Um, so I'd never really seen it. I had heard of it. I think the reason why it came on my radar is from a Letterboxd review from a filmmaker I really like named Isabel Sandoval. She, I believe that she was the one who wrote this um, review where she basically just called out that she thinks this was a career best for Tony Curtis. And I had recently watched Some Like It Hot, Billy Wilder, speaking of it, our king, mm-hmm. an episode we probably will will do one day. Uh, and I loved Tony Curtis and Some Like It Hot. I love that movie so much. And I think he's fabulous in it. And um, there's a great documentary called The Celluloid Closet that was made in the early 90s about queer cinema history. It definitely focuses more on the cis male white aspect of uh, queer cinema history, early 90s, what can you do? I still find it to be pretty fascinating and it gets into some really interesting specifics. And Tony Curtis is one of the talking heads because of some like it hot and Spartacus where he has very homoerotically charged scenes that were end up cut, I believe in some versions. And I loved Mm -hmm. Tony Curtis's vibe because he was like, talking about some like it hot and he was like oh i loved being a woman i felt like i had to purse my lips out so that everybody could see my luscious lips and then i looked like a duck like he just was very funny <laughs> and like talking about how like being a woman was very freeing to him and i was like this ostensibly straight guy has great vibes love mm-hmm. mr curtis recently found out he's jamie lee curtis's dad and i was like what yep. how did i not know that for so long um so he, i was really he coming much parenting <laughs> yeah i mean i was looking at his wikipedia he had six wives or no like six wives and six children but like three of those wives each had two children seems like mm-hmm. he had a very he had a lot spread spread lot around a bit yeah um but yeah i'm a big i really like his performance and so i'm like it hot i really liked his performance here so i was coming to this movie more with tony curtis in mind Robert lancaster um i had heard the name before but never really seen him in anything so this was kind of a first intro into him as an actor I saw on Wikipedia that he is kind of a macho man in a lot of his films, mm-hmm. which I feel like tracks mm-hmm. for for this performance. But yeah, other than that, I really kind of was going off of like a review from someone I really respect who enjoyed the film, as well as a general like enjoyment of Tony Curtis's whole vibe. But other than that, very new. You had seen this movie before, right? You seemed very excited when you picked it. I've seen it twice, actually. So this was my <laughs> oh, third wow. time watching it. And I actually watched it like twice in preparation for our episode because I wanted to listen to that commentary track um that's included on the criterion edition and i really like it a lot um it's probably like my favorite uh favorite noir film um Mm. i like how it subverts the traditional tropes of the genre while still maintaining really true to the stylistic aspirations of film noir there's real there's no murder involved here but it's still just as cynical and dark and seedy as like all the other film noirs that come to mind when we think of the genre like double indemnity your king mm-hmm. billy wilder king. he'll probably he's gonna come up a bunch because we got to talk a little bit about how this <laughs> connects a, a little bit to ace in the mm-hmm. hole mm-hmm. but um yeah i just find it to be a expertly shot film uh mm-hmm. the cinematographer whose name is uh slipping my mind sadly uh it's uh james wong how um guy's phenomenal um i was reading a little bit about and listening to the commentary track and there's just this kind of breakdown of our introduction to jj hunsecker and how that scene was blocked and lit and how james wong how was kind of approaching this film in such a radically different way photography wise than any film he had photographed up until that point 
and that just goes to show his um kind of adapt adaptability um to the mm-hmm. material but not just to focus on him i find the dialogue in this to be insane i stopped counting my favorite quotes from this film at 35 um <laughs> because like there's so many quippy one-liners and just zings th- slurred um not slurred <laughs> slow sloan at uh one <laughs> character from another but um yeah i just find it to be very interesting i think there's a lot in here about uh journalism and media as well as what was going on at the time mccarthyism um yeah i i think it was in the commentary track but according to this uh film historian whose name i want to get right again um james uh Nairmore, james Nairmore, the film historian who's written a lot about sweet smell of success he states that this was the first time that in text mccarthyism and huac was addressed head-on oh wow yeah so that's maybe something we can dig into a little bit later but yeah i just find all the topics it's trying to tackle very interesting and one last thing that i'm just fascinated by with this film is it's basically an independent film this wasn't produced by a major studio. It was produced by Burt Lancaster's own production company and Janet Leigh, Tony Curtis's wife at the time, and yes, Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter. Um, mother. Sorry, Janet Lee. <laughs> mother, yes, mother. Uh, Janet Lee um, produced this film as well. Oh, wow. And yeah, that kind of just segues me into what you were saying about Burt Lancaster. His machismo and his confidence and his like devilishness, sinister uh demeanor in this film is just to me iconic um and it's just one of the many things i really love about this movie um yeah so if we want to start with the performances in this thing you kind of talked a little bit about tony curtis but i want to know what you thought of burt lancaster in this thing i think he's good i don't know if he pops as much to me as uh tony curtis does i i really like curtis's performance just because i think it there's like he's big in a lot of other in a lot of places but he's also really subtle in a lot of really interesting places Mm -hmm. in terms of like the way his character sort of stalks around and observes uh and so i find myself more drawn to falco as a character and more drawn to curtis as a performer um yeah burt lancaster he's kind of you know he's playing this sort of macho machismo sort of which is funny to me that he's like a theater writer, which is like not particularly a masculine job. I think that people would associate with, with this kind of guy. Uh, so I do find that to be very funny. Um, but yeah, I think he's pretty good. I think he, you know, he's very like, I don't know if he is giving me as much depth as I, as I want, but also I think he's perfectly serving the script and perfectly serving what the character needs to be. Uh, and he's just that kind of underlying malevolent kind of source that like, Curtis is so desperately trying to sort of capture for himself. Uh, for me, I think a highlight scene is the scene where they're in the cafe, I think, or the diner eating what looks like oysters Rockefeller, uh, which is like a very like old timey New York uh, dish, which I love. And it's the scene where he basically asks him to set up the police attack on the 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 musician, the where he basically it's, yeah he basically tells him like hey go plant the marijuana you know in in less words than that because you can't really say it out loud um i thought that was that was my favorite scene with burt lancaster only because he just puts so much subtlety in his eyes and so much subtlety and like the power play there where curtis is so like against doing this like i wouldn't do it 
like even if you gave me the column and then Burt Lancaster's an amazing little mm. just like smile in his eyes he's like smizing and it's like that moment of him being like yeah that's what I'm doing dude um yeah so I liked Burt Lancaster I think he was really good in this yeah I I agree with you I think the way that he plays the sinister nature of Hunsucker on his face is just so intense and brooding and I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to raise uh, Burt Lancaster to lower uh, Tony Curtis. I think he's also phenomenal in this. I've seen some like it hot, and I think he's so funny in that. Um, but in like doing a little bit of research for the film, this was like a big first for him. He had never played like a really serious, subtle role before. And I think mm. he just knocks it out of the park. I think he's, you know, so slimy, but also like one of the only people in the film who has any sense of a moral compass that is kind of set up only to it's like it's like when people teach you like uh, a new skill or a new trade and they say you know rules are meant to be broken you're going to learn all these foundations and all these new rules and of course once you get more involved you're going to have to break them um he seems to like set up rules for himself just to break them i think because you know it's the scene you're talking about where uh jj hunsucker says to sydney you know who do you suppose writes the column while Susie and i are away and that big mm-hmm. smile and it's like oh and they give you the columns. So, you know, in, in the lead up to that, Sydney has basically said, I won't plant the marijuana on the kid. That's so slimy. I wouldn't even stoop to that level. And then it's like, oh, you're going to give me the column, though. Which you is can, so you, funny. I'll do whatever you want, daddy. Like where his morals are, because it's like, OK, you don't want to plant weed on some guy, but also you will uh pimp out a girl you know without her consent which is like the for me the worst thing he does in the movie i i personally think is like like she clearly came there for safety because she literally just told him that she was taken advantage of by another guy she's clearly coming to falco for safety for i mean i assumed there was some attraction that she had to him that maybe she Mm -hmm. wanted to pursue something with him but really like she just wanted a place where she could be comfortable and be with a man that she trusted and he is gross and like manipulates her into having sex with this guy for his own gain while convincing her that it's for her gain. Uh, it's really nasty. And so I find it very funny where like his lines are drawn. You know what I mean? Like we're like, it's just, I, he's a very strange character because it's like, he'll do one really awful thing. And then another, and then he refuses to do something that I think is equally awful, if not maybe a little less. Um, yeah, that was definitely, I personally find like the worst of his selfish actions in the film. Yeah, I completely agree. That's when it becomes like abundantly clear that Sydney yeah. is the snake that Rita tells him that he is. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he's just another dog in this quote unquote dog eat dog world that all these guys are inhabiting. And I think like that's the scene in which it becomes abundantly clear that like, to me, this movie is like a lot about toxic masculinity. Um, because, you know, if you move through the movie and you see the, really the only two women of prominence are Rita and Susie, um, JJ's younger sister, who he is weirdly like obsessed with. And like, there's like some really like strange like sexuality going on there. It's almost like incestuous the way that he views Susie, not the way that Susie views him, because the whole story revolves around her love for the Dallas boy. Um, I forget his name, but he's the guitar player in the band from all the boys from Dallas. Um, so yeah, like in the, it's, really interesting to see these scenes play out with women on screen and see how they inhabit spaces in relation to the men around them and the way that they are treated as simply like ornaments or tools 
that can be used to get what they want, i.e. the scene exactly what you're talking about, you know, Sydney pawning Rita off to Otis, that other columnist, so that he can get his line item in that columnist's column. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's disgusting. Uh, and it just goes to show that the sweet smell of success is nasty. Yeah, and like JJ's yeah, obsession with his sister is is very strange. Like the whole film hinges really on on his obsession with controlling her life and who she's with. It's weird to me because like he doesn't even ever really give a reason why he doesn't like the Dallas boy other than he's with my sister. Like we don't really I mean maybe I missed that, but like I just don't think that like we really understand why other than like he's not rich and he wants to date this man's sister like i don't i guess i find out his like hatred of this kid super unfounded and like he's such a creepo about it and like yeah his his i don't know i mean clearly like i'm curious like she's living with him so i also find mm-hmm. that to be kind of strange like i wonder if maybe their parents died or like she's 19 so maybe she's clearly dependent on him as a parental guardian in some sense as opposed to their actual parents so i wonder if there's i'm sure that's more work that Burt Lancaster did as like an actor maybe to flesh out that backstory like I'm curious if like they lost their parents and that's why he is so overprotective of her like I think there's reasons why I don't think this script gets into them but yeah his relationship with her oh you do yeah so um you know I got really deep into this one like I I read a lot and I watched a lot of videos and everything but apparently now this film is based on a novella uh by Ernest Lehman and the original novella, I don't remember if it was the novella itself or a draft of said novella, but um, it's based on a real-life syndicated gossip columnist who did hold all this political sway and was this powerful wow. as J.J. is depicted as being on screen and apparently was this, like, bastion of toxic masculinity in on Broadway. Um, but he is rumored to have had a really, really problematic uh, relationship with his daughter. Oh, gross. Yes, it's very <laughs> icky. And uh, that is the basis for the relationship here. And, you know, I think it can get kind of, um, you know, uh, it's not exactly to a film's benefit when you have to know all the backstory and to kind of situate yourself in the time and place, both like in the media and the political landscape of that time to really fully appreciate the film. But I do think that this bit of context is maybe helpful in understanding where the relationship comes from Mm -hmm. um but you know to your point though is like i I didn't kind of see the justification for the relationship um i kind of did like think about how inconsequential everything everyone is doing is yeah like all the time yeah it's like alluded to that like jj has like the president's ear or could like with the Mm -hmm. you know with a swipe of his pen could basically endorse the next president of the united states all the way up the ladder um but you never see any of that. It's just literally like, it's not even like necessarily gossip about stars that's happening. It's just like JJ's relationship with his sister and like columnists interacting with other columnists. It's almost like, oh, I don't even know how to explain it because it is like, it's just, there's no uh, stakes for like the real world. Not to say that you don't feel the stakes while you're watching the film. Cause I think that's what's mm-hmm. so awesome about the movie is like, how you like feel the suspense build even like when i said before it's there's no murder involved and there's no like kidnapping or chase it's like pretty mundane things when you boil it down but you still feel this tension 
Yeah, no, I agree. I think that, like, I mean, and I also think that the romance is really compelling, I think. I wish there was a bit more closure on it. Like, I wish there was, like, more of a, like, because I feel like once Lancaster is like, oh, you put your hands on my sister and he kicks her out or he kicks uh, Curtis out, we don't really get, like, closure on, like, what happens with JJ and his sister, nor do we get closure on what happens with JJ and, or with his sister and with Susie and the Dallas boy. Uh, you know, we know he's in the hospital, right? Um, that's what sort of drives her to the brink of suicide, though. I do think that's a manipulation tactic that she was using to get um, Curtis into the apartment. To, I think that she set him up. I think that that's a heavy implication. And I think it's it makes her more interesting and gives her a bit more autonomy if she is setting Curtis up. Um, but yeah, I wish there was a bit more closure on those because I find the romance to be really compelling. Like they're kind of Romeo and Juliet vibes there in terms of like star-crossed lovers, can't be together in this sense it's more about class and and yeah the, her brother kind of tearing them apart um so i was really compelled by the the romance there i wish there was a bit more closure on the ending but maybe that's also a part of the sort of murkiness of the ending that i think is intentionally uh dark uh and murky there um but yeah no i i really i thought she was interesting especially especially in that ending with and the romance was very lovely i think yeah, I I noted that I thought it was very Shakespearean in nature. I'm so mm-hmm. I love the uh the comparison to Romeo and Juliet. Uh, would you believe that the actress playing Susie this was her first ever role? Wow, she did a really good job, especially in that last scene with her. She was really really good in that scene. Yeah, I completely agree, and I like what you were talking about how like she plans like this manipulation to get Sydney like implicated in like something sorted. Um the film historian uh who does the commentary he like actually is like shitting on her performance during the commentary and i was like i couldn't disagree more i think she's phenomenal and it's crazy that this is her first movie and it's really all she ever does she like retires four years later um yeah she's phenomenal and i also like thought that like Susie as a character is like actually a lot more savvy than the men in her world are giving her credit for because i do agree with you like that ending is like completely um planned it's like it's it's something that she's like you know planning and like trying to do is like you know trying to find a way out for herself she's like trying to take back some ownership of her situation yeah and i think that like the reason why i think there's that heavy implication that she's she intentionally set him up was there's like a moment where like they're for it's a great it's a great framing of like curtis and lancaster and then her through the door and she's like kind of in between them it's it's just a great kind of uh, blocked shot and mm. I think there's just like a moment on her face that I I just happen to be looking at her and she kind of smiles when he starts blowing up at, at Falco and I was just like oh I think she did this on purpose especially because uh jj seems really like confused by the call that he was responding to like it just it just feels like she clearly set him up in that sense but I also love that like I think she just knows that the two of them are up to something because through you know setting falco up she also pushes her brother to the brink of or she really pushes falco i guess to the brink of exposing jj's lies of him being like you're the one that told me to do this anyway which so i just feel like she kind of gets a win-win like she gets to kind of like expose both of these men for what they were doing to her and her life and her lover um yeah she's really interesting i think she's an interesting character I think a lot of the women are really interesting. I think the Rita actress gives a really lovely performance in that scene where she's realizing what's happening to her. 
Uh, I think she gives a really lovely performance. There's, I think that I wrote down the character's name is Mary. I think she's like JJ's like secretary or something. She's very quick witted and like funny. I, I like a lot of really fun women in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And like super fun women and the most interesting performances in the film are some of the women. Rita's one of my favorite characters for her limited screen time. And again, not to like, not to like actually like lower Sydney or JJ, but I'm just so compelled by how this is a film that was made in the 1950s in which we have this idea of women being second-class citizens. And there's instances in the film, like you talk about with Otis, the, uh, you know, uh, like, you know, like predatory columnist who's like, you know, being promised Rita from Sydney in exchange for the line being in his column. And like, then Rita gets upset and Sydney like has this moment on his face that Tony Curtis like portrays so well where like he realizes what he's doing. There's just a couple moments like that in the films where men almost seem to like show on their faces and also in the actions that take place in the arguments between the women that they know what they're doing is like bad and what they know that what they're doing is like predatory. And it boggles my mind. And this is like a real world thing that I think about when I watch this movie we always hear about like when people espouse, you know, regressive views about women, about non-binary people, about queer people. It's like, well, you know, they're from a different time. And then I go back and I watch something that was made in their time. And it's like, no, you knew what you were doing was bad then. You know what you're doing is bad now. And it's even more accentuated by the fact that it's clearly in the authorship of the film. These are not good people and what they're doing to these women are not good things and they know it. This is a tangent now, but it's like, it's one of the things that I love going back and watching these old movies because it's always the same narrative. It's like, well, you know, women have their place and men are the men and boys will be boys. But it's like, no, it's clear that these are fucking assholes and snakes as Rita calls them and uh, yeah that's just like it's one of the most visceral reactions I had while watching this movie again for the third time is that scene with Rita that you brought Mm. up at the beginning I think my personal favorite scene is something we haven't touched on yet but my favorite scene I think in the whole movie is I don't have the character names but it's the first columnist he tries to get um the line in Mm. the 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 blind item in with the, the man who kind of insinuated to assault or at least make uh unconsented moves on rita and he right i can't, I can't really it was, McKenzie, was a little, he was joking she oh, took yeah, it too seriously <laughs> crazy i forget i i do that all the time whenever men are gross to me i just i take it too seriously um yeah no i him with his wife i thought another great kind of interesting female character yeah. and uh yeah i love that scene i i love i just love the blocking of it i love the writing of it i love the structure of it i loved the actor and tony curtis working together to have these like unspoken moments of blackmail that are happening immediately in that moment um that was Mm -hmm. definitely my favorite that was like a highlight for me in this film was that scene i just loved how subtle and interesting the blackmail was and how it kind of comes to this explosion of this man who was not willing to risk his dignity for this blackmail and i love that when he exposes it to his wife she's like wow that's the most honest thing you've done in years i love it like his wife is like just glad he was honest with her uh just fascinating just a very fascinating scene i felt yeah um man i I love that you brought that scene up and i love that you brought up the blocking you brought it up a couple times and i know Mm -hmm. i brought it up uh near the beginning too but there's just so much that's so carefully thought out and 
one of the other supplements on the Criterion Edition for the Sweet Smell of Success is a conversation with the director of the forthcoming Indiana Jones 5, James Mangold, wow. who's apparently a pupil of uh, Mandarick, the director of this film. And he talks about how much of a traditionalist this guy was mm. and you know how he really believed in the OG format of narrative filmmaking. But it is so clear that this guy was like, a old school master in just the way these shots are set up. And I love the example you're talking about with the scene between Sydney trying to blackmail the one columnist and his wife realizing it. Um, there was another one you brought up. I don't think you mentioned though, the act- did you mention the blocking in the scene with Rita where that? No, I didn't know. But if you look at that shot, it's so, it's just so immaculate because there's, the two men who are like kind of ganging up on her and then she's in the center of the frame and then right behind her, the door is open, creating that beeline for her to go back and storm off and basically object to the situation she's being put mm-hmm. into. Just awesome. And then the last one I'll mention, because it's I think it's my favorite, is and a quick anecdote again from the commentary. It's a great commentary. I recommend everybody listen to it. Um, is Lancaster produced this film and he... Uh, insisted on playing the role of Hunsucker, uh, Hunsucker, and I think that maybe like you might have been feeling that a little bit uh, in watching the film, it sounded like. He insisted on playing Hunsucker, and he insisted that Sidney would not sit next to him and kind of block him in at that table where he sits every night and basically holds court. And, you know, the director wanted him, wanted Sidney to come up and sit next to him and thought it played better dramatically. So this compromise was reached where Lancaster got his way and the director got his, where Sydney would pull up a chair and sit in the background next to him. And yeah. I think it just goes so well to illustrate the kind of psychological dynamic between Sydney and JJ, how he's like this groveling servant, just, you know, clasping for the riches that uh, JJ can provide. And JJ is just that stern, austere, like cynical and rude as I'll get out, uh, overseer. I, I love that sequence, and I think it's just set up so perfectly, and it provides such a interesting narrative function as well. I absolutely picked up on that as well, and it's a moment that you see and you take in and you kind of move past. But then thinking about it in hindsight, like there's a lot of great little moments like that. I also think it plays into how I said Curtis is kind of always prowling a bit, like looking at things in the yeah. background, always a bit detached. Like I, I there's a scene where. Similarly, it's the confrontation between Susie and JJ in the theater where he's having some like event or something and they're fighting about um, the Dallas boy and Curtis is just sort of like (laughs) sitting on the stage and he's like framed in between them and he's just sort of like listening. Um, I don't know. I just feel like it it was just really because I know this is also sort of out of type for Tony Curtis as well. Uh, and it's really, he's really good in it. I think he's really good in the role. Like I, I love, (laughs) this is random. I love when she calls him eyelashes because he, he is such a pretty boy. Like he is such a, like, he's the epitome of like a pretty man. And like, uh, I think it's, it's, he's playing against type in a way that I think totally works for me more than I think maybe Lancaster does. I think that, that Curtis playing against type works for me really well here. And yeah, the blocking like assists in that characterization a lot. Yeah. No, he's so pretty. And uh, I think that, yeah, I agree with you. That's what makes him so successful is like he hadn't done something like this before. Um, And it was like such a passion project for him because he produced it along with his wife, Lancaster. And I'll uh, 
I'll give you my casting what if, and if you have anything else after that, we can then move on to connections. Um, but the casting what if is, do you know who they originally wanted to play J.J. Hunsaker? I'm going to only guess because you're bringing it up. Is it Bogey? It's Orson Welles. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Because I was trying to think. Yeah. I'm like, who is like a gruff dude, like a man's Bogey man? Bogey would have been really fascinating, though. I mean, 57. Was he even alive? Still? I mean, yeah, that's that's one that's one thing. Because Bogart, you know, rose to like his big. He died January 57. So this he would have like maybe barely been able to film it. His last film, I think he filmed in 56, which was, mm-hmm. um, oh, it was a boxing movie. I feel like oh, I, should, I should know this. Yes, I believe that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was his last film was this like boxing film. But yeah, no, he because I, I knew I was like 57 feels a little too late for Bogey. And sadly, <laughs> yeah. I was correct because mm-hmm. um, yeah, he got sick and died pretty young ish young for I feel yeah. like today's standards. Yeah. Uh, Orson Welles would have been Wells, wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently the author of the original novella felt like his um like allusion to the real life figure was very similar to Wells's allusion to William Randolph Hearst in Citizen Kane. So he thought that that would have been like a cool little bit of like stunt casting. But I, I love Burt Lancaster in this movie. I think he's awesome. Um but yeah, no. Do you have any like final thoughts? And then we can like move on to Connection Stace in the Hole if we have any. I don't think there's anything major in the um, in the plot or in the action of the film outside of my final thoughts and ratings. So we can we can go on and talk about what connects the films. Yeah. Um, so I picked this mostly because of the journalism aspect, but also it became clear while watching Sweet Smell of Success again that it is like kind of a satirical takedown of the world that JJ and Sydney are operating in, and I just thought that tied really nicely back to the world that Kirk Douglas's character was operating in in Ace in the Hole, there's obviously like very different stakes involved. Like there are actual Mm -hmm. stakes in Ace in the Hole involved. The man's life is on the line. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, I thought that they kind of make for a great pairing. And, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is like one of the first in text uh, direct references to McCarthyism and the House Mm Un-American Activities Committee. And, I think that that's like somewhat indicative of just kind of where we were at as a culture at that time. And I think it parallels really nicely with Ace in the Hole's like indication that Americans are obsessed with spectacle and mm-hmm. tragedy. But I don't know if you had anything that you thought of while watching this film. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I think that the journalism aspect is definitely like the main and like the idea of, yeah, like sort of what Americans, uh, consume i guess in terms of media and journalism i think that's definitely the most prominent link um but i also think that there's like an interesting link to be had maybe not in the most explicit senses but between um the both protagonists in the film i find them to be very similar archetypes in terms of very selfish men who are willing to throw under others under the bus abuse women do whatever they need to do to get to where they want to be and they both meet similar fates i don't know if we get the impression that falco has been killed by the police but he's getting the shit kicked out of him (laughs) um and so you know they i think it's interesting that they're both sort of selfish though ambitious men who step on others to try to get to the top and just before they can reach that Everest of 
that apex of where they want to be, um, it all comes crashing down and they meet uh, a grislier version of the future they intended. So I feel like that was another huge connection I saw was just the the, the protagonists, which I feel like the, the male antihero is very much a prominent figure in, in most film and media and storytelling. Um, so, the, But I think that these two are very similar, maybe because they're working in the same sphere of information and media and journalism, and they're working in the same kind of uh, oeuvre. I could see these two being, yeah. you know, butting heads while maybe uh, Douglas was working in New York. As we saw, he got kicked out of many, you know, newspapers up in New York. So maybe I wonder if, I wonder if Falco had a hand in that. Like I could Ooh. see them existing in the same world, you know, yeah. and, and uh, because they're very similar. So that was the other big kind of connection for me outside of those thematic elements. Yeah. Chef's kiss, Mackenzie. That's beautiful. Thank you. That was, re- that was really good. I loved it. <laughs> um, did you have any favorite quotes from this movie? Because I mentioned up top, this movie is just like got some of the most amazing lines, I think, in my there, opinion. I don't know if you liked any of them. There weren't as many for me, I think, because you said you had like a lot. And I was like, yeah. oh gosh, I didn't have as many. I mean, the one you put in your letterbox review is the best for me, which is your dead son, get yourself buried, mm-hmm. uh, is one of the, and I also like, I loved just her calling him eyelashes, as I mentioned. Uh, there was another one I thought I wrote down that I thought was really interesting and I'm not able to find it now. So I might have to let it go into the, yeah. into the. Oh, you've got more twists than a barrel of pretzels. I don't remember who said that or what the context was, but I did write that down because I thought that was really funny. There's a bunch of allusions to pretzels. There's another line where he, uh, Sydney says to somebody in a club, uh, if you're funny, James, I'm a pretzel. Drop dead. <laughs> okay. Maybe this guy, whoever wrote it, was like really into pretzels right now. Yeah. Apparently, he was really into pretzels. He was also really into, like, safari animals. If you, like, dig through the IMD quotes page, you'll find a lot of allusions to, like, animals you might find on safari. Uh, I think my favorite one is, like, I don't relish shooting elephants with a mosquito gun. That said by JJ to um, Sydney uh, after they confront the Dallas boy, which his name is just Dallas. I looked it up. It's his last name, Dallas. Oh, love it. Well... Uh, Mackenzie, if there's nothing else that you have, do you have a uh, star rating for us? I do. I, you know, it's hard not to compare it to Ace in the Hole because that's actively what we are doing with this podcast. And so it's hard not to compare them as like a double feature. Um, I definitely think I liked Ace in the Hole better if I'm like comparing them side by side. Uh, I, I just connect more, I think, with Wilder's directing style and his writing. And I found the stakes, I think, to be a, a bit more interesting in that one. But I still think there's a ton to enjoy with with Sweet Small Success. I love Tony Curtis's performance in this. I love the interesting women. I am really compelled by the romance, even if I wish there was a bit more closure on it. Uh, the script is really interesting. The cinematography is gorgeous. The the I love the sort of darkness that kind of overtakes, but there's still these like neon lights. I just feel like the the cinematography does an amazing job at like exhibiting the themes of the thing, the thing of the play, uh, the movie. <laughs> what am I saying? And uh, something we didn't really mention is that score rips whenever that oh, big yeah. boisterous wah, 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 like those huge horns come in. You're like, oh yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a really good movie. I again, I don't know if I love it as much as Ace in the Hole, but I still like it. I could see this film growing on me. I think my rating, I think it might is going to be controversial with a lot of our friends. I am at three and a half with a big fat heart. <laughs> well, For hey. me, the way I use hearts sometimes are honorary half stars. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I give like a three and a half and a heart 
and it's basically a four star, but not quite. If that makes sense, and I feel like okay, since so I gave Ace not a four star. Four, so yeah, I feel so like four stars from you is better than three and a half stars and a heart. So what if you I, give a film four stars and no heart, but three and a half and a heart? What's better? What oh, do you think? I think that four four stars, no heart, three and a half heart shows that I respect the filmmaking of the four no heart better, but I like the three and a half more. Does that mean I don't gotcha. know? Like I feel like I don't I have I don't know what my system is doing. I just feel <laughs> like I gave Ace in the whole four stars last week. I do feel like script and story and performance wise, I prefer like in terms of consistency. Mm-hmm. I prefer Ace in the Holes. That's why I mostly am ranking rating at three and a half to show the difference that I that I do have a preference between this double feature. Um, but I want to get the heart out there because it is a really good movie, and I don't want people to think I like don't like it. Yeah. Um, what are your final kind of th- wrap up thoughts and rating for this film? Yeah, so um, I really loved Ace in the Hole a lot. Actually, four and a heart for me is no small feat. That is a lot. Unlike you, I have like a very didactic rating system. Four stars means like I loved it a lot. It's just not a masterpiece in my opinion. And so that well, that was for Ace in the Hole. With Sweet Smell and Success, I do have a prior relationship to it. And that is somewhat coloring what to me is a five-star film. Um, I think this thing is an absolute masterpiece. Is again, it's my favorite noir. I was trying to downplay it a little bit up front because I didn't want this to be like, persona or three women where it was mm-hmm. like it's abundantly clear that ian likes this movie there's no suspense this is terrible podcasting <laughs> um but no no i i love it a lot i think both of the leads i think burt lancaster and tony curtis are extremely well cast i would have not preferred to see orson wells in this role um <laughs> i love them both i think the introduction of susan harrison is insane i think she plays Susie so well and yeah, I just love this movie a lot. I find it like endlessly rewatchable. Like you said, that score, like we said, the blocking, uh, the lighting, the cinematography, it's all immaculate. Five stars from me. Whoa. I like how we both, between this double feature, preferred a different one. Like we each have a different favorite out of the two. I think that's very interesting. Yeah. And I like that we, I also like that we both liked them though quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I think that people, I think this is a great double feature. I think we did a really good it job. It is. It's a good double feature. Yeah. Well, that is going to be your double feature, folks. Ace in the Hole from Billy Wilder and The Sweet Smell of Success from Alexander McIndrick. It looks like we do have one email from our listener. So, uh, do you want to go ahead and read that for us? Yes, we have a letter from Alex, aka Cinema Esquire on Letterboxd, who says... Oh, love the show slash Criterion artwork is a subject line. Letter says, Mackenzie and Ian, I'm so glad that I came in on the ground floor of your wonderful new podcast. I love the concept of double billing the amazing films Criterion offers. And I love the fact that your taste ranges from art films to share films. It's good to have a diverse taste. Am I right? Damn oh, baby, you can pull mermaids out of my cold dead hands. I, I love <laughs> share films. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic pick with the sweet smell of success. I love the setting, the performances from Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis, the cinematography and the jazzy score. But I love the dialogue most of all. The acid-tongued barbs are abso- are simply incredible and really rewards repeat viewings. I do think a rewatch is going to make me yeah, take the film. I still more. don't catch all of them. <laughs> um, of the Criterion films I own it also has my favorite artwork packaging great art from Criterion mm. for this I agree what are some of your favorite Criterion covers thanks for the podcast and keep up the great work Alex 
Great question. Thank you, Alex. Thankfully, you sent me this question earlier, Ian, because you were a lifesaver. So I had time to like pick out some art that I actually loved. Uh, so I wasn't just scrambling while we were recording. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was going to require some thought in prior <laughs> yes. to recording on my part. So I thought you could use the same. So did you come up with any? I did. I was, I literally went to the Criterion website and just went to the all film section <laughs> and just kind of surfed and like saw which ones caught my eye. Mm-hmm. And I, I find, I have figured out my style. I think I What's tend that? to, I think I gravitate towards illustrated covers. Okay. Um, ones that aren't necessarily screenshots or ones that aren't, I don't know, just pictures. Like I love drawn covers. I think, um, mm. I love, they recently updated David Lean's summertime with uh, what I find to be just a gorgeous drawing of Catherine Hepburn in that film with this beautiful sort of yellow and blue and salmon colored color palette. And it's just gorgeous. Similarly, uh, similar style, the Lady Eve um, is another great cover I love that has these very kind of caricature drawings of Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda that remind me of the drawings at Sardi's, which is a famous kind of Broadway restaurant in New York City. Um, other ones I love that are drawn. I love the tales of Hoffman has a gorgeous cover. It's like one of my faves. Mm -hmm. It's like this blue ballerina. It's just gorgeous. Uh, one that just came out that I, I have not seen this film, but the last hurrah for chivalry, John Woo's film, the art for that is just like mind blowingly gorgeous to me. It's a beautiful watercolor painting of these two samurai, presumably the leads of the film. Um, and yeah, another film I've never seen, but I was like, what is this art? It was First Man Into Space? I have never heard of this movie. Never heard of it either. The, the art was fab. I was like, am I watching this movie? Because <laughs> the art is so weird looking. It's kind of giving 1950s atomic era style. And I was like, love it. Uh, and then Women in Love has a gorgeous cover. Women That's like the most, love. it's, oh, the cover for this? is gorgeous i thought it was a gay movie because of the name it is not but the cover is still very gorgeous yeah so those are just some covers that caught my eye i I also found out that like outside of illustrated covers i do like when a screenshot oh yeah are you seeing the art the women in love cover is freaking phenomenal whoa yeah it's like so pretty oh it's a ken russell movie yeah oh this sounds this looks great just by the cover yeah it looks very very pretty you heard it here you heard it here first folks do judge a book by its cover <laughs> it's gorgeous <laughs> I, and another option i feel like i love illustrated covers i love drawings but i also like when a screenshot or an image from the film is like transformed because sometimes mm-hmm. they'll just do like honestly look i love the red shoes i hate the cover i hate that it's just yeah. like the really weird close-up of of moira which i love that film but i'm like i look at the tales of hoffman cover and i'm like man why couldn't we get something like that for the red shoes um but so when you when they really transform a screenshot like the sound of metal i think is an amazing example of like Mm -hmm. an image a still from the film that has like art like really artistry put into it um safe i love the cover of safe just has that screenshot of the final shot of jillian moore but it's there's like texture built around it through other drawings and yeah yeah the Midnight Cowboy one, I think, is an awesome one of my favorite covers, probably really in the collection. Yeah, um, I'm rambling, but yeah, the, the, I think those are the two styles I kind of gravitate towards. What are your, some of your favorite artwork in the collection? Um, so I agree with you in uh, in some ways on the illustrated art covers. I do like a lot of illustrated art covers, but they don't tend to be my favorite. I also like the Tales of Hoffman cover. I think that's a great cover. 
Um, but I also really like the simplistic screenshot covers more so when they are like mm. got some heavy graphic design in them, like that Sound of Metal cover. But I do like the Red Shoes cover a little bit. <laughs> uh, it's oh. not my favorite. It's not my favorite cover that's ever been made for the Red Shoes, but I do like it. Um, as far as like illustrated covers go, some of my favorites would be uh, Rouge. Oh, that art is very pretty. Uh, yeah, it's it's gorgeous, and that's by Stanley Kwan. Uh, that's a more recent addition to the collection. I really mm-hmm. love that as far as illustrated covers go. Um, just to get it out of the way, I don't really love two illustrated covers for two of my favorite films in the collection, the forthcoming Petite Maman. It's not my favorite. Mm. I like it, mm. but I detest my beloved Worst Person in the World's cover. I do not like <laughs> that cover at all. Um, but yeah, no. My 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 uh, preference is definitely the like graphic design heavy uh, stills from the film. So like Blow Up by Michelangelo Antonioni. In fact, mm. all of Michelangelo Antonioni's films have excellent covers. La Notte is a really heavily stylized still of all three of the leads of that film superimposed onto a black canvas. Um, Cold War is just a still taken out of that film. It's very striking, very beautiful. Um. And then the last two I'll mention are more in line with what you're talking about, that illustrated uh, idea. Elevator to the Gallows is mm-hmm. gorgeous. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a it's kind of a mashup of graphic design and illustration. And then the last one I'll spotlight is kind of like a uh, cutout, like kind of like paper mache aesthetic. Uh, that's Ooh. the cover for Daisies mentioned yeah. in my. Uh, mentioned in my top 10 on our first episode so yeah those are just a couple of my favorites and some of my non-favorites uh (laughs) yeah i'll say there is nothing worse than a movie you love having a crappy criterion cover it's like man because i will say my heart sank the day that lost highway was announced and the cover is just (laughs) the original poster there's not even there was zero work put into that it was just the original poster here it is and i was like lost highway is such a cool movie it has such interesting visuals that you could pull from like oh and i don't know if that's just what lynch wanted or what because his other his other films in the collection have designed you know not heavily designed like the blue velvet cover isn't very designed but it's still like it's saying something that's striking um oh man my heart sank when the lost highway cover was just the poster same with inland empire i think is also just the poster i was like literally i'm like y'all what uh so that is like yeah it's just the wow the worst day ever when a movie you like has a shitty cover i know i said the last one was daisies but i forgot to highlight i love it when criterion does something funky with the slipcase on a digipack so the parasite cover yes 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 yes. we i do have to i do have to sneak that one in because they cut the holes out on the the slipcase yeah very very cool great question alex yeah great letter and uh that was our only letter for this week but if you want to email us or send us a voicemail you can send that to the criterion connection at gmail.com i believe is our is our email uh and yeah we'll share it on the show yeah whatever you like to talk about if you want to make me happy folks write in send us a voicemail i love getting those i'm always i'm always inr inbox seeing who's trying to reach out to us but yeah the criterion connection at gmail.com we'd love to hear you about the sweet smell of success ace in the hole or what we're doing next week mckenzie are you ready tell me i'm ready i'm you have not told me ahead of time i need to know i need to know what we're watching 
Okay, so I had so many ideas in the bank. I was thinking about doing a couple things I've seen before. I had a couple that have just gotten added that I was like, ooh, that'd be super fun to do. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to take us out of old Hollywood. I'm going to take us out of the United States, in fact. Let's do it. to Japan, and we're time traveling up to 1997, the year of my birth, and we are going to be watching Spine number 1155, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure. Oh my god. (laughs) Holy shit. Whoa. Uh, I have... I have heard a lot about this film. I have Me never too. seen this film, but I have. It feels infamous in like cinephile circles. Uh, <laughs> I feel like, yeah, wow. I I feel I, like I sometimes hear it spoken in the same breath as Old Boy, which makes me very nervous. Um, I but I'm excited. Had a, I had a very similar introduction to this film that you had with Sweet Smell of Success. I put it on while I was very busy, and I didn't pay any attention to it. So I only remember the first five minutes, but it wasn't like a DNF. It wasn't like this film's bad. It was just like, I've got a lot going on in my life right now. Um, but I was just kind of thinking about films to choose. And I was like, thinking exactly what you were just saying. Like, this film's like huge in the circles that you and I run in. Our friends yeah. seem to love this movie. And so I thought it'd be super fun to finally give it the attention that it so obviously deserves. That this is gonna be wild! Oh my <laughs> gosh! I'm just reading the synopsis on uh, on Criterion's website, and it 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 talks about a character by saying, "quote They may be evil incarnate." <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, this is gonna be a wild pick. Yeah, Ace in the Hole and Sweet Smell of Success were not dark enough for me, so I needed to <laughs> needed to get a little bit more nasty. Um, so yeah, we're doing sweet, uh, nope. So we're doing cure next week, everybody. Um, but yeah, no, Mackenzie, this has been a great episode, a great conversation, and I'll see you next week in 1997 in Japan. Until next time. See you next week on the Criterion Connection. Did it. I got so scared. We got the lamp. No, and the- <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna go for it in just a second, but you. You beat me.